some audience questions came in ahead of time. Thank you, everybody, and welcome. Thank you for sending them in. So question here, my client tells me there's no value to his business. He is the business, <clears throat> and any value would be considered personal goodwill. So two questions flow from this. What is personal goodwill? And what is the value of the business that only has one employee or just one client? So what do you think, Melanie, you wanna take a crack at that one? Sure. Um, and, and Jason can feel free to add any comments to that. So that's an excellent question. It comes up quite a bit. Uh, you know, if you have a situation where it's basically a self-employed um, individual that could otherwise be getting a T4 slip from a company, then you say, well, what's the difference? How can this company be worth anything more than if I was just a T4 employee? And that's a great point. So the concept of goodwill is it's a bit nebulous. But the, the personal goodwill means, you know, it's, it's personal to me um, and I can't transfer it. So I can't sell it. So how can it have commercial value um, as opposed to selling a business that's been around for a long time, has a lot of employees, has great customer relationships or contracts, even capital assets. Um, I can sell those. If I own, if I'm the owner, I can sell those, either the shares or the assets, and someone presumably will pay for it because they know they're going to receive some money going forward. But if I buy someone's personal service business that they're just basically independent contractor, I can take it over, but the revenues are going to stop without that, without the, uh, the owner being there. So, you know, and I've got clients, you know, they're trades people, they got maybe a van full of tools and that's it, right? So sure you got the van and the tools, but is there, you know, how do you value, if he's not working, <laughs> there's no business, right? Exactly, so maybe you can sell the van and the tools, right. but you know, so there's probably some tangible value. Maybe there's an invoice in there. There has been, hasn't been some collectibles received yet, <laughs> uh, but as to intangible value, likely there isn't any. And I guess professional services might be a little bit different, right? If you have a dentist or a mutual fund broker who has a book of business, it's a little bit different than goodwill, right? Yes. Well, so, I'll say it's a different kind of goodwill, right? right. Maybe more saleable as opposed to it, once I'm gone, once I leave, no other cash flows are going to come in. But you're right. right, as a dentist, if I'm a dentist, I'm probably selling customers, I'm probably selling the location. Um, and another dentist coming in can probably keep some or all of those clients. Yeah, no, great, great question and good answer. Thank you so much. Did you want to add to that, Jason? No, I agree with all that. That's, that's a tricky topic. We could have a whole hour discussion about that, but it ultimately comes down to how dependent is the business on the owner and how transferable is the business to new owners, right? Right. So yeah. I, I agree with everything. So welcome everyone. Thank you so much for joining today's presentation on divorce and business valuations. My name is Stephanie and I'm an articling student at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. So on the agenda for today, Russell, Melanie and Jason will be sharing their insights on the following topics as it applies to divorce and business valuations. So we have, what is a business valuation? When would a valuation be required? The types of valuations and reports, costs, benefits, risks and pitfalls, how two experts can come up with two different evaluations, uh, what assumptions are most likely to be attacked, what or why does the court like hot tubbing so much, and the top tips for business owners and spouses and lawyers. 
So now it is my pleasure to introduce today's hosts, Russell, Melanie, and Jason. So Melanie is the founder of Calyx Valuations Inc. And throughout her professional career, she has been involved in many assignments for a variety of public and private companies of various sizes and across many industries. Uh, she obtained her training at two of the largest international accounting firms in the industry, and she has placed second in, the, in Canada on the CICBV membership exam. And we also have Jason Kwiatkowski. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Perfect. Beautiful. I was practicing all morning. So Jason is a founding partner and the president at Valuation Support Partners LTD, a professional services firm specializing in providing the business and legal communities with business valuations, litigation support, and exit planning advisory services. Jason is an independent financial neutral and has completed numerous business valuations and expert reports. Finally, we have Russell Alexander. So Russell is the founder and senior partner of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. With over 20 years of experience, Russell offers a wealth of knowledge and expertise in collaborative family law. He uses his expertise with a client-focused approach by creating unique solutions for each of his clients to enable them and their families to move forward with their lives in a compassionate and collaborative manner. So now that you know a little bit more about the team um, and what we have on the agenda for today, I'm going to pass things over to Russell and we'll start the presentation. Great work, Steph. Thank you so much for the introduction. We're going to run a poll just as we're doing some introductory marks. Uh, we have a dream team here in terms of qualified experts to so take advantage of uh, this knowledge. Also, if your feedback is that you want more, we can do an advanced session on this. Each one of these topics we could easily spend an hour on. So we're gonna give you a quick overview of some of the topics we think you should be thinking about when looking at business valuations. So let's make a start. Poll one, um, what is your reason for joining us today? Uh, legal professional, mortgage, mortgage agent, interested in learning more, other professional, going through a separation divorce, have a loved one going through a separation or divorce or other. So uh, we've had that up for a moment. Let's see what our results are. Legal professions, 68%. Big number of uh, legal professionals. Other professional, 8%. Going through separation, divorce, 21%. And other four, you can put that in the chat box. So clients going through separation and divorce and lawyers wanting to learn more. Thank you for that, Seth. All right, let's uh, get right into it. So first topic is what is a business valuation? I think you're going to start us off here, Melanie. I am. So what is evaluation? The basics, basics of evaluation is that you're trying to, to set what someone would offer for a particular asset, whether it's a truck, whether it's, it's um, an intangible asset, whether it's a company shares or a liability, and what that the owner would actually accept. So you're, you're pretending as if there's an, a transaction, sort of an M&A transaction. There's an offer and negotiated and then it's accepted, revised, accepted. So that's really what you're trying to come to is what would, what's the value? What's the worth of something in terms of dollars as at a particular point in time? And when we're talking about family law matters, you've got a few valuation dates. One's going to be the separation date in Ontario, at least other provinces it might be current date. Um, the marriage date, if there are any assets then or any business interest then, if it's a common law, there might be, or, or a joint family enterprise situation, it might be a current date as well. Or if the spouses are, are co-owners of a business, it might actually be a current date because it's more of a civil matter than a, a family law matter. Um, 
so generally what we're what the evaluators do is we 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 have to there isn't an actual transaction the the assets or liabilities aren't up for sale in most cases so we have to in, add in some assumptions and some of those assumptions would be you know that both parties there are parties out there interested in buying they're rational um, there's an open market so people can people will know that that in theory the business interests or asset is available for sale so they can look at it and decide if they want to put an offer um, there's a due diligence assumption that everyone's sort of fully informed they know about the assets they know they, they guess at what their future expectations expected cash flows etc are and that there's no pressure to transact and uh, nobody has to do it um, and we go back to we'll call sort of finance theory or rational theory so i was explaining it to explain valuations to client um, as if you know as simple as trying to look at pricing or valuing this business interest or this asset as compared to, let's say, a Government of Canada bond. The Government of Canada bond, there's a market for it, and it's sort of priced based on when the principal is expected to come out, when the interest will come out, how much the interest is, and then the risk related to that, which is usually low. So we, we consider you know, future cash flows. We, we use our little crystal ball and guess at that. The timing of those future cash flows and the risks of achieving those cash flows. So that's the gist of evaluation. And then, then um, ultimately, Jason's going to talk about how you put that into a report, but that's the theory of what, what valuation is all about. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, uh, I, I, would, go ahead, I would agree. Sorry. Go ahead, Jason. I was, I was just going to say uh, that is great. I agree with, with everything Melanie said. The only thing I would add is that to keep in mind you know, a business valuation is, is really a process. There's a process that goes into determining or assessing the value of a business. And just to be, be weary of these online valuation calculators where you can plug in a couple of numbers and outspit a, a value. Just be weary of those because it is a, a process that you have to go through. Yeah. All right. So let's run our second poll. And uh, while we're, we've got this up and running, the poll question is, have you ever had a business valuation or worked with a business valuator or CVV. So we're gonna give everybody a minute to give us an answer, but let's go to our next question that came in in advance. Uh, what challenges are you finding with valuing businesses during COVID? How can you quantify the impact of COVID on the value of a business? So who wants to take that one? Do you want to take it, Jason? I took the last one. Sure, I could take a stab. I mean, this is one that we could also have a 10, 15, 30 minute conversation about. It's very yeah. difficult. It's very challenging. And I am seeing this in a lot of my businesses that we're valuing. There are some businesses that have experienced an increase in business because of COVID. There are other businesses that have experienced a significant decrease in COVID. So really, you got to go back to fundamentals and, and, and talk to the business owner about where they think the business is going in the future, because chances are the last couple of years are no longer representative of what the future is going to look like. Great very challenging. I was involved in a collaborative file at the beginning of the pandemic, and it was just too uncertain what the impact was going to be, right? We know we knew the business was taking a hit, but nobody knew, you know, we, at, that, at that point, we thought, let's wait a year, right? The market's going to stabilize. So this, this is 2020. And, uh, you know, we're going three years into this, right? So 
the initial advice was, wait, let's just see what happens. This is going to stabilize. And it hasn't quite yet. So uh, really insightful answer. Let's see what our poll results are here. And I'll just All right. add, if you don't mind, I'll just add a little something on that. Uh, yeah, go for it. I, I, uh, evaluators were all at the beginning, and I'm sure Jason will agree, we're all struggling to figure out risks and how do you, how do you deal with the COVID situation. Um, so really, it really forced us to go back to what we always knew, that, that you know, when we're doing evaluation, we probably need to look at more than one method, and we need to substantiate what we're doing and get other reference points because of the uncertainty. And we're always supposed to do that, but, but in COVID, it's, it's, it's even more important to, to look at other reference points. Yeah, really good comment. Thank you. All right, so almost 40% have been involved with the business valuation. 53% said no. So we've got a lot, a lot of uh, educating, hopefully, to do today. And um, no, but no, somebody else is 8%. So thank you for that, answering those poll questions. Now we're going to talk about when would a business valuation be required? So what do you, th what do you think here, Jason? Yeah, that is a good question. And there, there, are, there are many different reasons or situations where a business valuation is required. So I'll kind of just touch on maybe five of the most common situations that I encounter. Obviously, the first one, what are we talking about today? Divorce, right? In a matrimonial separation. And that's whether it is traditional separation or collaborative separation. Um, in divorce, you have to deal with net family property because that property has to be divided or equalized. And if one or both spouses owns a business or has an interest in a business, shares of a company or loans, you know, that business, that business interest, that property has to be valued because it has, it's an input into that net family property statement. So it's required in matrimonial separation purposes. For the other common situations, just for interest sake, you know, think about if you're a business owner, any type of actual transaction, if you're looking to sell your business or perhaps buy another business or maybe buy out a partner, you know, you need a valuation. The issue is what's it worth? What's the value? What's the price? Other situations for business owners that I get involved in is any type of planning purpose. You know, it could be tax estate planning where you're doing an estate freeze or a reorganization, corporate reorganization for tax purposes, or it could be just general exit or succession planning or pre-sale planning in advance of selling the business. Maybe you want to enhance or increase the value of the business before you sell. Well, the starting point is a benchmark business valuation. That is the fourth reason, the value enhancement initiative. And then finally, situations that I'm sure Melanie and I both get involved in is any type of litigation or legal dispute. This could be a commercial dispute, a shareholder dispute, or a matrimonial dispute that's going through the courts where the issue is, the main issue is value of the business interest. They need to call expert business valuators in to deal with that. I just read about a case that came out of the Court of Appeal within the uh, um, uh, Frank's uh, newsletter. Um, and it was, I think a two or $3 billion business. The founding father had passed. Four brothers were running it and it couldn't get along, right? And the court ordered something. None, none of the Bart brothers were asking. They ordered the business be liquidated because mm. they just couldn't cooperate. So they lost the advantage of all the tax planning, all the you know, all the all the structuring they could have done to the advantage of everybody. 
uh, it just blew up in their wow. face. And the judge said, well, I'm selling this thing. You guys can't get along. Uh, I'll try to put a link to the case in the show in the show notes. But we had a question coming on the Q&A chat box, which I think is timely for you, Jason. Question is, well, this is clearly a process in order to evaluate. But is it done differently when the parties are going through mediation uh, before evaluation has taken place? So I guess that question is, do you value the business if they're in mediation or could it be part of the mediation process? What do you say to that question? Yeah, absolutely. It can be done prior to a mediation, any type of alternate dispute resolution. You know, if the issue is the value of the business, that that's something that we need to get involved in. Yeah, that's not going to change our process. Okay, great answer. Let's run our poll. We have a question if this webinar is LSO CPD accredited, if yes, how many hours? We've applied to have it accredited. They usually are. If it is, we're gonna contact everybody who attended today and let them know what the hours are gonna be worth um, for CPDs. Thank you for that question. And we've got another poll, poll number three. For those who have worked with a business evaluator, what is the primary reason or purpose for doing so? So that's a question for our audience, but I have another question I want to get in here while we're letting everybody vote. This one came in ahead of time. My lawyer told me I have to get a business value. I'm concerned about the cost. Do I have to use a CBV? Melanie, you want to take a crack at that one? Sure. And, and I know that Jason's going to talk a little bit about costs. Um, so, so we'll go into it a little bit more. You know, there's no nothing that says valuations have to be prepared by CBVs. I would say you might, it's probably advisable in many cases um, because it, it, my experience is that when you have a CBB, especially one who does a lot of family law related work um, and has gone to court and knows what, what to expect, it generally, it, it may be a little more costly than your accountant or your friend or downloads from the downloads of some software, evaluation software, uh, but it, usually is should be subject to less scrutiny it will hopefully move you forward to get get resolved a lot faster great answer thank you so let's see what our poll results are here um matrimonial separation almost 80 percent yeah clearly you know I, I think just to speak to that the lawyers are concerned about their liability uh, we want to make sure the assets are valued properly so our clients can make an informed decision they could still enter in a bad deal, but they're making an informed decision that they're entering into a bad deal. So we usually err on the side of getting it done properly and through a CPV. Tax reasons, 5%, trans transactional purpose, 14%, and others, 16%. So put the other in the chat. You can put your questions in the chat. Let's get into our next topic. What are the types of valuations and reports that uh, lawyers and clients can expect? You want to take a crack at this one, Jason? Yeah, absolutely. We've talked about what a valuation is. We've talked about, you know, when valuations are required. So now the most logical next question is what are the different types of reports that you can get from a evaluator or a CBV? And I think when, when, when you're working with a CBV, there are options. So that's something to keep in mind. There are different types of valuation reports that we can prepare in accordance with our professional standards. And I'll talk about, I'll talk about three. So the first, category is a written report. You actually want a written report, and this is the most common. So there are, within this category, there are three different types of reports. There's a calculation level report, an estimate level report, 
in a comprehensive level report. And I don't want to go into all the specifics and details, but those reports vary in terms of the scope of review or the scope of work that the evaluator does, the amount of documents that they review and due diligence that they perform. It also varies in terms of the disclosure that goes into the report. So a comprehensive report will be a lot thicker than a calculation report. And then also with cost. So the more work, the more it costs. So that's the first category of the type of report, a written report from a CBV. There's another report that CBVs can provide and it's called a limited critique report. So this is a report that you're gonna get the CBV to review another expert's valuation report and provide comments on that expert's evaluation report and provide that in writing. But this limited critique report itself will not contain a conclusion of value. So it'll be useful for identifying issues, concerns, problems with another expert's report. But unfortunately, you know, the next question is, well, if, if this expert report is faulty, what is the correct value? It won't answer that question. That's the limited critique report. And I also like to throw in this third report, which is just, I call a verbal report. Now I don't do these, it's not very common, but I, I do them on occasion. Um, this is a situation where the CBV will, will conduct their review analysis, prepare the valuation schedules, but just won't spend the time papering up the written report in accordance with the professional standards and instead will meet with the parties and communicate verbally the conclusions. So no written report is provided in this paper. It's just a strictly a verbal report. Yeah, I, I find, especially when we work collaboratively, and I know both of you have collaborative practice training, it's really useful just to get the verbal report initially. And that's sometimes all the clients would need, or they may do some follow-up questions rather than going through the formality of the written report. There is some value to a written report because you can make it part of any final agreement that you have and um, maybe some future value, but I find that's really useful. Thank you, Jason. A couple of quick I questions can, before, sorry, go ahead, Melanie. Sorry to interrupt, I just wanted to yeah. add a comment on that. I, I think the oral reports are, are, I think, a little dangerous and they can work, you're right, they can work in certain situations, but you have to be very careful because what happens is that you're not producing, you don't, there's no report. So when you have a situation, especially in a collaborative or joint, and, and they're, both parties are not either equally informed or equally financially sophisticated, one of the parties may, you know, one or both may have someone on the outside who is sort of their advisor. But if there's nothing to take to that advisor, it's that person who may not understand valuations and, and trying to communicate what they heard from the evaluator and, and it, and, and without, and then the sort of assistant or trusted advisor has nothing to really go on and help out with. So my experience, you got to be very careful. And sometimes clients think, oh, it's cheap. It's a cheaper option. Excellent. We'll go with that. But you got to force them as evaluate. I always force them to realize what, what they're getting and what they're not getting. So it's, it's, it's something to be very careful of. There's options to minimize sure. the risk too, right? You could do, you know, sort of a shuttle collaborative session where you're going to meet with one client and their advisor meet with the other client and their advisor right so if there are if there's a great course or they're relying on other financial advisors they can be brought into the fold as well but great point thank you uh, so a couple of real quick questions um, one came in ahead of time is there a simple way to value small business what formula can be used shall i, I add that one sure 
I wish, I wish. Um, and again, it depends. Like if you're talking, the first question we talked about where it's basically like a self-employed individual who's using a company to maybe deduct, make some deductions, that value is probably pretty easy to, to determine. Um, but in general, no, there's no formula. It, things can change. Things change based on the time. So as the, the economy changes, the industry changes, um, that will affect values in general. And then each individual, each industry and each particular company will have its own value or own way of, of um, a potential purchaser looking at the value. So I'd say in general, no, there isn't. There may, and, and that's not to say there aren't some out there. I've had situations where um, we found that there was, you know, a consolidator buying up a bunch of companies in a particular industry, like pharmacies, whatever. And they may use a very a, a set formula or relatively set formula. So if you can get insight to that into that, that may help you. But again, that's very point time specific. And if you, if you advance a few years, um, it may not be relevant. Or if you move back, it may not be relevant. We're having fantastic. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Jason. <laughs> Anyone that thinks you can just apply a multiple of three to four times the last 12 months earnings to come up with value, I mean, they're sadly mistaken. Yeah, and that answers some of the questions we have about in the audience from you know trying to do, determine what questions to do in mediation if you're not using a value waiter. But there's another question. It's kind of a you know an important question. I don't know if we can answer it quickly, but I, let's give it a crack. How do you professional value professional practice, a lawyer or accountant, where the buildings not own, hard assets are minimal, can't sell your client list? There's no guarantee of incoming professional be able to retain clients uh, is it valued on income generating business is this double dipping since the income will be used as a basis for support well factually we don't know what's being used as a basis of support but who wants to take a crack at that one well i i think it, it comes back to that issue of personal goodwill we were talking about especially in a service business right i mean if all the factors that were mentioned there you really have to get into you know, how dependent is this business on the owner and how transferable is the client base to new owners? Because the more dependent and the less transferable it is, the lower the value or the, the more the personal goodwill. All right, let's take one a look. Thing, sorry. sorry, go ahead, Melanie. I was gonna say, one thing to think about in there too is that, that when we do evaluation, one of the principles is that we're coming up with a number that would be equivalent to cash. So in other words, if I come up with, a, if Jason or I conclude that this business is worth a million dollars, we're assuming that someone has gone out, would be able to find a million dollars and write a check that day and not, you know, not do a vendor take back or an earn out. A lot of professional practices, if they are sold, uh, they're, if their books of business are sold, a lot of times they're on retention basis. So there's sort of an earn out, so based on the success. So someone may tell you, well, this accounting practice I sold for 1.3 times, but it was paid out over three years based on a retention. That is not the same as, so that would not be what Jason or I would say the value of that, that practice is at the valuation date, because I'd have to convert that potential purchaser to write a check and not write it, write, you know, pay over time if the clients are retained. And there comes the issues of there comes issues of equalization, right? 
the spouse is going to want his or her money now, not three years down the road in monthly increments. But let's get to the cost of these reports, Jason. Um, what should uh, lawyers and clients be expecting? Yeah, very simple question that has a simple answer, right? Yeah, I don't think so. It, it, I mean, I'm sure that's what everybody is interested in on, on this webinar. And it is a very common question I get, but unfortunately there's, there's not a simple answer because you know, the cost is going to depend on, on a few different things. It's gonna depend on you know, the size and complexity of the business. It's gonna depend on the number of businesses there are, the number of valuation dates that are required. And it's gonna depend on the type of valuation report that you wanna go with. So all these factors have to be taken into consideration. I mean, just as an example, if, if we were to do a valuation of a real estate holding company and we had a real estate appraisal, you know, that's a much simpler valuation than valuing an operating company with intangible value and goodwill. So obviously the real estate holding company is going to cost less. Um, and I mean, it goes without saying the, the more businesses there are and the more valuation dates, that's, that's more work. So that's going to be more expensive. And we've touched on the types of valuation, written valuation reports. Um, an estimate valuation report requires more due diligence, more review, more disclosure in the report. So it's gonna cost more than a calculation. And similarly, a comprehensive, which has even more, is going to cost more than an estimate. So the type of report has a factor as well. But I mean, I know that's, that's, that's sort of a cop-out and no one likes to hear that, um, but we always, more times than not, um, clients want to know how much it's going to cost before we get started. So we're happy to, to have a discussion up front about these factors and provide a fee estimate before they decide whether or not they want to proceed. But, you know, even that's a cop-out. So I can only speak from my experience, and maybe Melanie has some comments as well, but just based on my experience, if I were doing one operating company, one valuation date, um, and I were doing a calculation valuation report, because maybe it's only for planning purposes, I think what you can expect for us to go through the whole process, it's going to be in the range of about five to 7,000, just to give you sort of a ballpark frame of reference. The other thing, sorry, the other thing, Jason, is you can provide a recommendation, right? Dip your toe in the water, take a look at the corporate structure, take a look at the assets, speak with the separating um, couple and say, you know, based on what I see here, this is the report I'm recommending and this is the range of costs. Right, yeah. depending on how complicated the business structure is. Yes. Sorry to cut you off, Melanie. Did you want oh, to? That's okay. In there? I was going to say I, I agree with Jason. I think um, I always find it a little dangerous providing the estimates because sometimes, like oftentimes, we don't get enough information initially to really know. Right. So, I, and I throw a few more factors into what what Jason said that affects the cost. I mean, one of them, of course, is complexity. Yeah. And that's basically what's getting how many companies or how complex are, in, even if it's one company, how complex is that company? Um, the likelihood of scrutinizing, and, and I'll put that into sort of also how much is involved, like how much does this affect the interested parties? If this is a big amount, then, um, and it's the only asset on, that's going on to the NFP, for example, it's going to be significant. And another really important factor is the quality of the books and records. My, my general experience is that over the years, the quality of financial information has been in some ways decreasing because a lot of companies have moved away from getting audits, reviews, 
or even getting accredited accountants. And, and often, and Jason can comment on this as well, based on his experience, that, that when we get the books and records, we think we're getting financial statements that are reliable, and then we get into them, we go, uh, no, no. So is this going to be a garbage in, garbage out scenario, or what do we do with, with these books and records? I suppose yeah, the great. structure could affect the cost too, right? Is it solely owned by one one shareholder or there, is it a minority shareholder? We gotta get the cooperation of other people involved and that could yes. increase the cost as well. All right, so benefits of a report. What do you think here, Melanie? Um, benefits, I mean, I think we've talked about some of them already. It's clarity. Um, so I've got a situation, I'll tell you right now, it's just came up today or I've been working on it. So it's fresh in my mind. It's, it's not a family law matter. But the parties on the cheap, one of the parties on the cheap went out and consulted with someone who's not a CBV and kind of didn't tell them what the situation, didn't tell them it was litigation, got their, got their views on value and, and basically saying, you know, I, I want you to represent, you know, I may be selling this asset. Can you tell me what you price it at? And now it comes to now, you know, a little while later after getting this, they said, oh, well, um, I, I would like you to come to court to give evidence on this. And the person said, no, that wasn't, I'm, that's not what I do. That's not my role. So it's now created, you know, they have to go find an expert. So they're not me. So they've got to, you know, spend a lot of time is delay the dispute resolution. So a big benefit of it is getting things done and getting things resolved and getting clarity and getting certainty. Um, because you may think, what you're paying to the valuator seems like a lot, and sometimes it is. But if you don't think about what, think about the cost, the legal costs, and all the other costs that are going to be incurred because you don't get that clarity and certainty and get the ball rolling up front. Um, and it can help. It can help um, you know avoid going to court. You know if it's a dispute matter, but it it, it might get it resolved faster, and that can be both not just a cost savings, but also an emotional savings. Um, everyone can get on with their lives rather than being in the court system for years. Really, really helpful stuff. Thank you. Let's yeah. do one, one, one thing to just- Let's do just a poll, run the poll and then go oh, ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead? Yeah. Oh, I was- I was just gonna. I was just gonna add that another benefit of, of getting a CBV involved involved is just the independence factor. You have an independent, neutral, and objective third party, and 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 no no biases, no relationship. So, and it adds but credibility I, I, to the data, right? So if one spouse, oftentimes somebody's suspicious of somebody else, right? There's cash. They're they've been uh, running personal business, personal expenses through the business. Lots of reasons to object to what's really going on. But an expert like you guys can go through the list of complaints, look at the books, see, okay, are there any cash sales going through and report back to counsel or the court in terms of your findings. So it's a neutral third party taking a look at the book. So great tip. In your experience, what is the most contentious valuation issue you've had to address? All right, so let's see what our audience says here. Unreported cash. Yes, this is a huge one, 31% personal expenses. We just touched upon that, 19%. Income diversion. I always love when um, 
they're splitting income and they get separated and then the new girlfriend or new boyfriend goes on the payroll and they just pass it over to the new partner um and russ i, mean, I just add to this that you know people are answering it as if it's not just whether it actually is an issue for example there may there may or may not be unreported cash it's the perception right and the reality so it can be both yeah and you you know if you have an independent evaluator looking at the data a case jason and i were on my wife or sorry my um client was the wife was charged with a criminal offense was acquitted had zero trust for, uh, with her husband because she ha he had her charged and she had a lit shopping item list of items that she thinks uh were wrong with the books jason went through them one by one reported back to us maybe about 50 percent of them were legitimate concerns but just having that voice and having that credibility of a third party go through the data uh, goes a long way and usually settles the case. Uh, so income diversion, we talked about that, unreasonable projections, 21%, COVID, 5%. So thank you, everybody, for sending in your um, answers to that. So let's go, let's take a look at our next topic here, risk and pitfall. Mel, Melanie, what we got? Sure. So some of them are sort of the reverse of the benefits we just spoke of, obviously. Um, one of the big risks I would say, um, and this is, so I'd say that if we, we define it as the risk of not getting evaluation, um, let's deal with that first. So that's, you know, not knowing if you settle, if you ultimately settled, if you've got the right amount or if you paid the right amount, um, or not complying, um, and never knowing what you, what you gave up, um, whether it was correct or not. Um, in terms of other risks related in the valuation, there's some of them we just that were on that poll that are pretty obvious. Um, of course, it's lack lack of disclosure. Um, getting sometimes valuations turn into letter writing exercises by the lawyers because we're not getting disclosure. Uh, cost is a risk. Um, you know, you may talk to Jason or I, and we tell you five to seven, and then you find out the books are a mess or there's unreported cash issues and it ends up being triple that or, or more because there's just issues that aren't anticipated. Timing, of course, um, we always, uh, I tend to be optimistic and say, we'll get it done within a certain period of time. But again, these issues that affect costs can also affect timing and just not getting disclosure affects timing as well. Um, the process can get out of control, um, especially if it's not managed by good lawyers. Um, so if you don't have someone like Russell managing the, the process, it can get a little out of control. Um, sorry? Don't have somebody like Melanie Russell. Maybe she's perfect. <laughs> yes. Okay. Or a good expert I, managing the process. I know. Yes. I know. I know. <laughs> but we we sometimes have to turn to the lawyers to say, "All right, we we're banging our heads against the wall trying to get this disclosure. We need yeah. your help. Can you step into it?" Um, and then, of course, there's subjective issues. So another thing to watch is that valuation, and we haven't really spoken about this. Valuation is not. Um, uh, it's not a hard and fast science. So there's a bit of science, there's a bit of art, as everyone always says. But because I come up with a value of a million dollars doesn't mean that I, I, I may not have known something, that value may be, who knows, someone else might see it differently. And plus there are subjective issues in, in valuations that, that um, can be a risk. And, and I'll just mention it quickly, but we often, if there are subjective issues, what 
evaluators tend to do now is come up with different scenarios. So if this, here's the value, um, and it may be a it may be a legal issue that we can't we can't determine. We need input on it, and you have to get to court to to make that determination. So we throw it to the lawyers and say, "Hey, lawyers, you go argue about this. If this if this here's the value, and if this if scenario B here's the value." Yeah. Uh, okay. So Jason, how can two experts come up with different values? Yeah, that was a great segue into this topic. Um, because Melanie touched on a couple of things. How can two experts come up with different values? Um, I say, unfortunately, this is, this is more common than people might think. Like Melanie said, valuations are part science and part art. Yes, they are based on some common mathematical tools and valuation approaches and you know math formulas, but they're also based on valuators' judgment and valuators' risk assessment. So some of the most common reasons why there would be differences in the value of the same business at the same date by two separate valuators. Uh, I'll just give you a sort of top five of the top or the common ones that I see. If, if, if valuators are relying on a different set of background facts or different sets of information, they may come up with different conclusions. If valuators make different assumptions in various areas can lead to different conclusions. If there's a different risk assessment done on the part of each evaluator. If there's different research conducted and different research findings coming back, that can lead to different conclusions. And then even sometimes, although it's not very common, but sometimes evaluators will disagree on valuation approach. And if you use a different approach, it may lead to a, a different conclusion. Although in theory, it's not supposed to, it, it might. All right, so what assumptions are most likely to be attacked or have different interpretations? I know if you make a certain assumption on, you know, just even a small percentage, it can have a massive yeah. outcome in terms of the value of the company. So which ones are usually you guys find are being attacked the most or challenged the most? Yeah, this will be helpful for people that are reviewing evaluation report. Um, I'll give you three of the most common areas open to critique in a, in evaluation report. Um, number one is the assumptions, the assumptions underlying the, for, example, for example, the selection of the maintainable earnings of the company. Um, and these assumptions could be things like, you know, different personal assumptions regarding personal expenses that are being put through the business. It could be meals, entertainment, vehicle travel, uh, telephone, insurance, like personal items. They need to be normalized or backed out. Different valuators could have different information about that. Unreported cash income you know, the market or the economic salary for the owners, you know, different assumptions will lead to different conclusions. Um, an, another area um, that could be attacked is just the selection of a valuation multiplier. So this, this speaks to the valuator's assessment of risk and the valuator's judgment. Is it a lower multiple? Is it a higher multiple? For what reasons? So are you supporting that? Different valuators could have different opinions. And another common one, that I see quite a bit is more on the balance sheet side. And it's, it more has to do with this idea of, you know, working capital, optimal working capital, excess cash, or whether there's a working capital injection that's required, because that will have effect on the value of the shares of the business that different valuators could do either different analyses or one may not address that issue when it should have been, but that's another common issue I see. All right, let's run our poll. Melanie, did you want to comment on 
what gets, usually gets challenged? Um, I, I think that's a great summary. One thing I would add is also, which I've come across quite a bit, is if there's other transactions involving, um, you know, it's, there may maybe there's a buyout of a minority shareholder a while ago, or there was an offer, or there's other valuation indicators, and that you know, valuators we need to consider that, but not we may not both both valuators may not get the full information, so that can be an important missing factor sometimes. Fire off, while we're waiting for the poll, let's keep it open for a minute. Let's fire off some questions real quick that came in, and thank you everybody for sending your questions in. The business has an existing ongoing lawsuit. Does this affect the valuation? Well, I assume it would. What do you guys think? Yeah, yeah, I can just touch on that briefly. Yes, it, it, it could very much affect the value of the business. And if there's an ongoing or outstanding lawsuit, um, is that a contingent liability or a contingent gain that has to be taken into consideration? And it, I mean, it can be very difficult because here we're talking about you know, something that's going to happen in the future that is uncertain, but we have to do our best to sort of, you know, assess where they're at in the litigation, the likelihood of an outcome, is there a legal opinion, we have to do our best to sort of uh, speculate, right? The vexatious or is it, you know? Well, and sometimes, <laughs> sorry to interrupt, but sometimes that, that may be the scenario, you know, we, we may not, lawyers sometimes aren't at the stage where they want to tell you what their expectations are about uh, or their, their analysis is of a case. So we may end up with different scenarios. Yeah. Or I've had a case where you just sever that off, right? And if there's a judgment, this is how it's gonna be treated uh, with respect to the valuation. All right, so do you consider property land appraisals to, as part of the valuation report? Well, I assume if it's owned by the company, you consider it, right? Yeah. All right, can a shareholder loan balance be used as a simple valuation for a sole proprietorship? A sole proprietor, but a sole proprietorship wouldn't have a shareholder loan. Okay, so that answers that question. Yeah. Let's, see what, let's see what our poll says. Um, all right, so two experts who disagree. Take the highest, take the lowest, nobody really picked those ones, use the average. Yes, yeah, probably what most people would do. Um, try a dartboard or let the court decide. Um, surprisingly, court got more um, votes than dartboard. So why don't we talk about hot tubbing? And so I think that's going to be our next topic. Sure. This is going to be um, you, Tony? Yeah. I'll so hot tubbing is a phrase the court uses, but it's basically you got these two experts who don't agree. The judge wants them to get together, right? And what, what occurs? Right. So, so this is another option that I guess could have been on that, that last poll. Well, we're setting up the topic. We're setting it up. Good, we good, want to give it all away. Good setup, good setup. And of course, there's other options like bringing in a third valuator, but that may not be ideal. But just so keep hot, adding valuators exactly. until you get a number that. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, so hot tubbing, yeah, hot tubbing is a little bit of an unfortunate choice of words, but it's certainly that term has become very popular now. But the, the idea is that if you have two experts, put them together and let them sort it out. Don't, don't get the court or mediator or lawyers to argue about it or make a decision. Just get the, the, get the experts to come, get together. Um, and I think it can be, you know, in general, it's a, 
it's a great idea and, it, and I've used it in situations, Jason probably has too, where it's been very helpful to narrow issues. I had a, a court case uh, a little while ago where um, it, it, we narrowed, the two experts, we narrowed the issues to basically say, if this legal issue is the case, then we both agree that this is the number. If this happened, if this issue is resolved this way, then here. So we did all these scenarios. We still had to give evidence. I think we were both of the, the two experts were giving evidence still for like a week, a week and a half, even though we had already agreed. Um, but I just imagine if we hadn't agreed on that, it would have been, we would have been on the stand for weeks and weeks. Um, so the hot tubbing, I think the court likes it because it leaves it to the experts to decide. Um, my experience is that you can sometimes resolve, you may not be able to resolve all issues, but you may be able to narrow it and at least be able to say, we agree on these, these issues. We're now, so rather than here, we're now here. Um, the hot tubbing, there's a few ways that hot tubbing can, ha can happen. And, and I think the original way, uh, the original thought was that once- Have you ever done it in a hot tub though? I haven't, and you know, I, I'm not sure. I, I, it's okay with Jason. I do have to. Your, pa your I papers would, your papers would get session. wet, right? What's that? Your papers would get wet. Wet. They, they would. But yeah. we're we're we do everything electronically now. Okay. Why do we, Sorry. We just bring it our computer and make sure we don't drop it into the hot. Okay. Um, so so I think the hot the original idea was both the experts had done a each done their own report. Now throw them in throw them together, and of course COVID said definitely no real hot tubs you have to use zoom that's right for everyone but um it, but but i've seen it used in other areas too where someone may not i've used it where and I, I call this hot tubbing where the experts haven't completed their reports but they talk during the process and they narrow the issues they may narrow and discuss issues beforehand so that you don't get to the point where you got two reports that are so divergent that now everybody has to talk to their clients and explain why their numbers are so apart. But if you can deal together during the process, then you might come up with something that's a lot closer. Yeah. Um, and I've also used it when one expert has, or, or me or I have issued a report and they're, they're hoping not to have the other expert have to do a full report. So it's more of a talking and seeing if they can agree and maybe they don't, you know, maybe they disagree with some of my assumptions but we can talk them out and then maybe I'll change them. Maybe I won't. Um, so a lot of different ways to use that hot tubbing, but it's just much more conciliate, not more collaborative type of approach and, and, and just to reduce costs, reduce angst for the clients and reduce court time. Hopefully. Yeah. It narrows the issues and significantly reduce court time and costs. Yeah. And it, it also focuses the issue too, right? So the trial yeah. judge just knows, okay, there's one assumptions, of being disputed and I'm going to hear some expert evidence and make a decision. Did you want to add anything to hot tubbing, Jason? No, I think that was good. I mean, the only thing I've, I've used it before successfully and unsuccessfully, but I think truly if you've got two professionals that are reasonable and open-minded, it, it can, it can really be helpful. Yeah. Great. All right. Quick question. And we're going to go into our final topic here. So this came in in advance. Um, when you enter the value of business on the NFP form 13.1 family court financial statement, are you allowed to include a deduction for the income taxes that would be paid on the future sale slash disposition of the business? So is that, I guess 
what this question is asking is the notional disposition cost factored into your valuation. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yes. Top tips for business owners, spouses, and lawyers. Okay, Melanie, we're back to you. Sure. And just I'll put one more comment on the disposition cost. That's a whole big area that could use a whole hour of discussion. So just be careful that it's not, it's not like you can deduct 100% of the disposition costs. Some people argue you can, but there are lots of issues related to that. So it's not a clear cut calculation. So just be wary of that issue. That would be an interesting legal argument if you brought the business into the marriage, right? So there'd be a deduction there. Mm -hmm. Would you apply a notional disposition cost to the date of marriage? You should. That, right? Most yeah. people overlook that idea. They just put the data in, but there's a disposition cost associated. So that deduction is going to be reduced, which is mm -hmm. going to potentially enhance the other side's uh, I'm just going on. You guys get what I'm saying. No, that's okay. I was, gonna, yep. I was no, just totally. going to say that if you engaged uh, Jason or I, we wouldn't have missed that. Don't worry. I know. <laughs> All right. Sure. So let's get to our tips and then we're going to uh, bring Steph back maybe two, three minutes here on this one, Melanie. Sure. Yeah, just very quickly. So uh, I'll give the tips as a, as a client and as a as counsel, just sort of what I've Thank seen you. in years. Um, as a client, be prepared. Um, be prepared to be patient. Be prepared to disclose if you control the disclosure um, and fully disclose and disclose on a timely basis. Um, be, be also be careful to track the documents that you provide. So if you're providing documents, you're the supplier, you're the business owner, make sure you know what you gave to who. The lawyer may track that, the lawyer may not, but it's really important you know what was disclosed because a lot of times, a lot of expert time, legal time, court time is, is, uh, is spent on arguing about whether disclosure was made, whether it's proper, and if you can't, you got to be able to prove if you provided something. Um, another really important thing is to get involved in the process. A lot of, sometimes I see clients who just say, I've thrown up my hands, you're the bell, I, re I retained you, just figure it out. Um, it's, if you get involved, and especially if you know the business, it's your asset, then, then that's going to be, you'll get a better result and you'll get it faster and probably more accurate um, if you are involved in the, in, in the process. Um, also go with an experienced valuator and listen to the valuator. It's hard sometimes if the valuator tells you a number, if you're the business owner, it's higher than you expected, or if it's lower than what the, the um, non-titled spouse expected it to be. It's tough, but you got to listen to the valuator. It doesn't mean the valuator didn't miss something. So again, that's part of being involved in the process to review things and communicate with the expert so they know what, um, so the expert understands things. Um, and, and really what the evaluator is trying to do is, is that is being the sort of m and &E advisor as if someone was selling or buying, the advisor is there doing diligence, you know, pricing analysis, things like that. So um, treat them like your right-hand person. Um, as, a, as a lawyer, I would say, you know, say some of the same comments there, but also force the, the evaluator to educate you. I, I find it so helpful when the lawyer understands and um and it's hard because you know i didn't go to law school because numbers numbers are my friends a little bit more than words whereas the lawyers probably 
didn't go to accounting school because words are their friends, numbers aren't. Um, but it's great that the lawyers understand what the experts produce. Great stuff. Thank you, Melanie. And we have our host back. Welcome back, Stephanie. Thank you. Good to be back. I'm learning so much on, on this side. Um, so we'll just get to our Q&A. One question that came in from the audience, will the CBV usually provide a particular number as a value for the business or will it be a range that's provided? So for example, would it be 1.2 million or would it be you know, between 1.1 and 1.3 million? Typically our reports, our conclusions are expressed in terms of a range because there is some subjectivity and variability. So we'll present it as, as a range from low to high, and then we pick the midpoint because you do need a point estimate. The only time you may have a one number is let's say it's a company that just owns real estate or just owns um, a marketable securities portfolio. So the, it, there's no real uncertainty related to the value of the underlying assets. But other than that, it'll be a range. Yeah, I think we've already answered this question. What if I own the business at data marriage as well as data separation? Do I ensure I get credit for the data marriage value? Well, we kind of covered that off. The answer is yes, but you yeah. also want to be mindful of notional disposition costs. All right. And, so. and of, sorry, and of disclosure, or, or like how do you, how do you have find the documents to do the valuation back 20 years ago, 20 right. years ago? Good yeah. luck, but yeah. 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 And, you know, there's also legacy issues, right? We've had clients say they own the business, but they didn't. Their parents own the business and they acquired it during the course of the marriage. There's so many things that can go wrong when you're going back 20, 30 years in terms of ownership. What do you think, Steph? We probably should wrap it up, right? Yeah, just to be mindful of everyone's time. So I want to thank everybody for attending as well as thank you, Melanie, Jason, and Russell. We hope you found the content helpful and keep. So if you do have any questions about our virtual event series or any comments for our team, please feel free to reach out to me at stephanie at russellalexander.com. So thank you again to everyone uh, who joined us today. And thank you so much to our panelists. It's, it's crazy how much uh, knowledge you can try to fit in in an hour. I know we could talk for hours and hours about these topics. So thank you again. And we hope everyone has a wonderful rest of your day. Great job, Stephanie. Thank you. Jason, great work. Melanie, fantastic work. Thank you so much for your time today. I know you're very, you're both very busy, and but this has been very, very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank pleasure. you, Russ and Steph. Have a great afternoon, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.